Hopefully you found Matthew 4 by now. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day, O Lord, we pray, our daily bread from your hand. That daily bread being your word. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Walking in darkness can be disorienting. Two nights ago, I was walking on the western shore of Williams Bay, Lake Geneva, with Eric and with Nick, and it was dark out. Eric was first, I was second, Nick was behind, and we approached a part in the trail right along the lakefront where we had to step over a gap about four inches wide. Eric did, I did not. <laughs> tripping would have been embarrassing enough, but instead of tripping, both of my feet went toes down into this gap. And what was on the other side of this four inch gap was basically a steel girder. <laughs> Nick is laughing. Nick was there. He knows it was not laughable. My shins cracked against the steel girder. I would not have made that mistake if it had been daylight. Driving in darkness can be dangerous. Maybe you've been on an all-night drive. And when it gets about four in the morning, you're just praying that you don't yank the car off the road because you're tired. And in the darkness, you're not quite seeing things correctly. And sometimes you end up going off the side and the, the little bumps wake you back up again and you think, whoa, if I had gone off the road, this is bad news. Longing for the dawn in those hours leading up to when the light shines. Dwelling in darkness is a place of despair. Living where it is dark is a place of despair. Imagine being in Alaska for the months on end where there is little to no daylight. I couldn't do it. Yet dawn brings relief from the dark. Dawn brings deliverance from the shadows of despair. As we're here at the end of Matthew 4, you know that a couple of weeks ago, we read from the earlier part of Matthew verses 14, sorry, 15 and 16, where Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah. 
the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Zebulun, Zebulun and Naphtali, they were two of the 12 tribes of Israel. They had been especially harassed in the Assyrian invasion. They were hugged right up against the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And we hear that it's called Galilee of the Gentiles because starting with the Assyrian invasion and then beyond, there were many periods where Gentiles lived among them and they were even ruled by Gentile rulers. The people of these two tribes were dwelling in darkness, but it wasn't just a political darkness or a cultural darkness, it was a sinful darkness. They were part of the ten tribes of Israel who had broken apart from Judah, from Jerusalem, from the Lord. This was a sinful darkness as well. And so they dwelled in this region, this shadow of death. But what we also know is that Jesus has just moved into their neighborhood. Last week, Jesus walks by the Sea of Galilee and gives a gracious invitation to four young fishermen, Peter, Andrew, John, and James. And with the clarity of his call to repentance and faith and following him, they immediately go. They saw the dawn. As we'll see in our passage today, dawn brings relief, it brings hope, but not always immediate clarity. You know on those all-night drives, when it, the sun starts to rise, you don't quite know exactly what you're seeing for a little while. You have the light, but you don't have clarity. The, the light may have dawned, but the sun was still rising here as Jesus moved into their neighborhood. The kingdom of heaven was at hand, but it was still yet to come. So as we enter into this last portion of Matthew 4, I would like to highlight here the dawning of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. The characteristics of Jesus and his ministry as the dawn breaks on Zebulun and Naphtali. Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. And he, that being Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea 
and from beyond the Jordan. First characteristic of the dawn of Jesus, the beginning of his ministry as the promised Messiah arriving is substance. Substance. Something of something that can be felt, held, understood. This is not just like a metaphysical reality where you're just kind of like imagining theories of who God might be, for instance. Jesus steps on the scene and he presents himself as the king. A king of substance. This substance shows itself in word. Note here in verse 23, he taught in their synagogues explaining his fulfillment of the Old Testament. You might wonder, what was a synagogue? Well, synagogue was not the temple that was in Jerusalem. Synagogues were local places of worship, and any town could have one if they had ten or more people, ten or more men specifically. They would gather weekly on the Sabbath, and they would gather for prayer and worship. These synagogues, according to Luke 8.41, had recognized leadership. They weren't just a gathering of people. When they gathered, they would sing. They would have prayer readings. They would read the Old Testament. And then there would be an interpretive homily or a sermon. And then, a, and a, I'm sorry, then a priestly blessing. We see that Jesus is doing this here, teaching in their synagogues. In Luke 4, we get a picture of what Jesus was doing in the synagogue of Capernaum. I'm sorry, of Nazareth. In Nazareth, his hometown, he reads from Isaiah 61. I quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus said. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But he didn't end there. Because then... He did what they did in synagogues, and he interpreted it. He interpreted and uh, interpreted and applied the passage from Isaiah 61. He said very simply, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And you could hear a pin drop. As his friends and neighbors who had seen him grow up as Joseph's son and Mary's son, older brother to his younger siblings, now is saying in the synagogue where he likely attended, I just read this incredible messianic 
prophecy. And you're seeing it fulfilled in me right now. Led the people of his hometown to ask, wait, this is Joseph's son, right? To which their rage, their zeal to protect God's name in their minds, caused them to grab Jesus and take him out to throw him off a cliff. And Jesus turned away from the precipice and walked right through them. Do you know where he went? Capernaum. When Jesus moved into the neighborhood, he had just left his old neighborhood. Having taught in their synagogue and having made it clear that all of the Old Testament is about him. So here we see in verse 23, he was teaching in their synagogues. He was gathering with smaller groups of people, people who were faithful Jews, and he was taking the Old Testament that they knew and explaining to them that it was fulfilled in him. But that wasn't all that he did. He was also proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He was preaching out loud to anyone who would hear. Including to large groups of people. What do we already know that he was saying? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his message. That was his gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You have been walking in darkness. You've been dwelling in darkness, Zebulun and Naphtali. But the light has dawned on you. I am your king. I am your dawn. Follow the light, your king. Turn from the darkness and follow me. People, as he was speaking in their synagogues and also preaching, may have thought back to prophecies that they remembered or prophecies that they heard right then. Listen to Ezekiel 37. And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. Ezekiel was an Old Testament prophet probably 600 years or so before Jesus was born. And he makes this astounding prophecy. I will make them, this being God, I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. And they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them 
and they shall be my people. I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Who is that sanctuary? Who would dwell in their midst forevermore? Jesus. They would have heard this and thought, as the ten tribes who had walked away in their civil rebellion had made their own king, faithful Jews would have said, yes, Yes, is he, is he bringing us together again? Do Zebulun and Naphtali no longer have to dwell in darkness because he's bringing us back into being his people? Two sticks as one? Yes, they would have heard that, and yes, that was true. But the greater reality, the wonderful mystery that Paul talks about that was being revealed in Christ, was it just wasn't a Jewish thing. All of the nations were going to know so that God would bring Jew and Gentile together, not in one stick, but in one man, Jesus himself. And so they hear that prophecy, and we hear that prophecy, and we have abounding eternal hope. Because in Christ, we can be united to him and united to one another. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. But it was a bigger kingdom than anyone could have guessed. He was a king of substance and word, but he was also a king of substance indeed. As we see here, he healed every disease and every affliction. Did you hear that? He healed every disease and every affliction. At our retreat this last weekend, it was a, a number of churches together, there was a brother who was paralyzed. And so he was in his chair the entire time. And he could barely use his arms, but he could, and he could speak also. What if all of a sudden he just stood up and walked? That shock was the shock they were experiencing. The glory, the awe, the what? That they were experiencing in Zebulun, Naphtali, 
and then his spread, his fame spreads throughout all of Syria, which was north, which was Gentile. From Galilee of the Gentiles to the Decapolis, ten cities that were Gentile ruled. And of course, from Jerusalem and Judea. Jesus was, he was being known. Word was spreading like wildfire. He healed every disease and every affliction. Was his, was his ministry to heal? In part, yes. But the ministry of healing was for the sake of attesting to the veracity of what he was saying. His healing power did not substantiate his gospel power in some way giving substance to it. The gospel has substance on its own. It is the power of God for salvation. And you think, how can words do that? Words can't. God's word can. So these people are seeing this happen Jesus healing. And they're wondering, could this be the promised one? As the dawn gives a glimpse of heaven because he is a king of substance and he is a king of compassion. Could God have done this from the heavens of heavens? Of course he could have. He's God. But our king came down to dwell with us, to experience the frailty of human existence, to know and resist every temptation known to us. And he healed, giving a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven, a glimpse of the light piercing the darkness as he showed that he was victorious over tears, sickness, death, and Satan. As he even healed those who were oppressed by demons. He was exhibiting the royal authority, the king creator of compassion, healing his creation. And in these specific instances, giving glimpses of him reversing the curse. Again, healing was not the emphasis of his ministry. He makes that clear in Mark 1, 32 to 39, where he's healing everyone. But then he says, I must continue and go to other towns because I have come to preach the Gospels. The thing is, being a king of substance and compassion is not the pattern of the kings of the world. Whether elected or appointed, that in some sense gives them an office or a title of some substance, 
but words fail and deeds are inadequate. Because these people, the kings of the world, neither actually carry inherent power, nor do they have the ability to actually change the lives of those that they rule. It does not mean that we should not follow them. Paul makes that clear in Romans 12, 13. God has invested his authority, but when it comes to the kings of this world, the government, it does not have the ability to actually change lives. They may express compassionate intent, granted, but they're unable to actually recreate. Nor is this the pattern of the king of our kingdoms itself. We find ourselves without the substance of words that match deeds. We may talk a good game, but we know that our deeds don't often match. Our best self-talk fades like a mist when our deeds fail yet again. Why can't I change myself? So we try harder or we give up. Neither of which are truly helpful or truly compassionate because we become our own worst critics or our own best self-soothers. And so, we search for other kings that have some substance to them. Sex, money, power, they all feel substantive. They can be touched, counted, adored. But these charlatan kings are just idols that we coronate. We put the crowns on them. And these kings hide their cost behind the promise of don't worry about tomorrow. I'll take care of you today. And to deny that they have some sort of substance would to not be actually living in reality, right? If you have money, that can make life easier in some respects. But what is the cost? What is the cost in God's economy to throw all that you have to gain all that you can? What is the cost in God's economy when sex is your idol and a glorious thing that he has created to display his glory 
in a marriage is instead pursued like a commodity. See, they're ruthless kings. They're not compassionate. They might have substance, but they have no love. They have no compassion. Compassion means to suffer with. They have no compassion because they always demand more. And you know who also demands more? Our own appetites. See, our own appetites are ruthless as well. And so our appetites and our idols form this oligarchy of oppression that just says, follow us today. We'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. But our appetites never stop growing because we were designed with eternal appetites. We were designed for never-ending glory. To feast. To feast with God. To find Him as the only all-sufficient feast for people who are always hungry. This feast for never-ending glory reveals our eternal nature that was created in us by God himself. What we are looking for in sex may be love instead. Intimacy. In money, it may be security or freedom from fear that someday I won't have enough. For the power of self-worth. That I've influenced others. That they would look at me and say, there's a life of meaning. They count. And if they say I count, then that means, yes, I count. But the thing is, any substance of an idol is God made like wood and stone, but they are simply created elements intended for good, but not intended to be worshipped. But that's not our king. Our king is our king of substance and compassion. He knows the eternal draw of money and sex and power. But even more so, he knows the beauty of delighting in God. The compassion of truly knowing God and dwelling with him and in him. Substance 
compassion, authority, and distinction would be two other characteristics. We'll talk more about those next week as we head into the Sermon on the Mount. Authority and distinction. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom, which, like the dawn, or the early moments of the dawn, would not have immediately made things clear to his initial hearers. What is the substance of what he's actually saying? But it does not have to be unclear for us. We have the full revelation of God's word, our authority. In Matthew 121, the angel told Joseph, you're going to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. In 417, as we said earlier, Jesus was preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there was an understanding of who he was by some, but perhaps not a full understanding. For us, it need not be unclear. In fact, heaven forbid that it is unclear. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, he's writing to a church, of the gospel. I would remind you of the gospel. This gospel, one, I preached to you. Two, you received it. Three, it's the gospel in which you presently stand. It's a position of belief. Four, and by which you are being saved. The gospel is what has saved you, what is keeping you, and what is taking you. These things are true if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. He's saying there is no other gospel but the gospel that I have preached to you. We need to be clear on the gospel. Would you say that you are? Would you say, yes, I know where I stand. And I know what saved me and what is saving me. If I may, let me just give you some gospel clarity. With six handles. Number one, God, the eternal, perfect, and personal King and Creator, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has existed eternally as the Trinity. Man, 
was created in God's image to be loved by God and to love God, to take care of God's kingdom and reflect the king's glory. Such intent was meant for intimacy with God. That is in all of us. Every single human is made in his image. God, man, sin. Man chose rebellion and self-glory. Rejecting the loving authority of God their father. Through disobedience. And though their intention is still for intimacy with God, that intention has been shattered. And the spiritual DNA of depravity is in all of us. We are all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. God, man, sin. Is there any hope for such shattering, for such utter rebellion? Christ. Jesus, our King and Creator, became a man for our sake. To rescue rebels, traitors, from their just and eternal death sentence. Living a perfect life for us. Dying as a perfect sacrifice for us. Rising again to conquer death for us. And ascending to heaven to graciously, even at this very moment, intercede for us. God, man, sin, Christ, how would we then respond to such good news? By repenting and believing the good news that Jesus proclaimed and then at the cross accomplished. Why? For his kingdom. Our king will return to judge the living and the dead. The living to eternal ecstasy with him. The spiritually living in Christ, I mean. Those who are dead in their sins to eternal judgment. And he will establish his eternal kingdom. Until then, we wait together, anticipating, loving. God, man, sin, Christ, response, kingdom. Do we see this in what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15? You betcha. The very next verse, verse 3 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This wasn't a gospel I made up. God gave it to me. 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Christ's death for our sins was foretold in the Old Testament. So Paul is doing the same thing here that Jesus was doing in the synagogues. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. That, in a nutshell, is the gospel. If you're looking for response, kingdom, keep reading the rest of 1 Corinthians 15. You'll see it. This is the proclaimed, preached gospel. Preached by Jesus and entrusted to his apostles and to the church. Because the authority of Jesus' clear gospel forms a people a church of distinction. A church of distinction. Could I invite all those who are members of Edgewater Baptist Church to stand? To finish the sermon, you are not outside of the sermon, this is still the sermon. If you have a bulletin, can you pull that out? We have the gospel in our statement of faith. As a member, you have affirmed this statement of faith. It is what we and you believe. Slide, good. If you don't have the bulletin on you, it's right there. Let's read it together. We believe that the supreme need of all human beings is to be reconciled to the God under whose just and holy wrath we stand. The only hope of all human beings is the undeserved love of this same God who alone can rescue us and restore us to himself. We believe that God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, sent his Son, Jesus Christ, into the world, who humbled himself by taking the form of a man and living the perfect, sinless life that we could not live. God demonstrates his love for us in that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than that, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God, which was satisfied through Christ's death. We believe that those who are regenerated by the Holy Spirit repent of their sins and trust by faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation. They are thereby adopted as sons and daughters of God, given new life, 
new hearts, full righteousness in Christ, and become co-heirs of the kingdom. Thanks. You can take a seat. By having the members stand does not mean that some of those of you who are sitting here are not Christians. I just had them stand because they have said, yes, this is true. This is what we believe. And as we read at the end of Revelation, it is the Spirit and the church that invite the world to come and drink of Christ, to come and know salvation in his name. The dawn brings daylight. The dawn brings daylight that turns to full light, that brings about freedom from disorienting, dangerous, and despairing darkness. It brings clarity and distinction. By God's grace, that's what we have today in the gospel. Jesus, our king of substance, compassion, and authority, says, follow me. Follow me. I make you distinct, even as I am distinct. Now you will shine together. He says to all his church, his followers, his disciples. He says, as I am in you and you are in me, I'm the light of the world. Now you too, church, are the light of the world. Oh Lord, by your grace, remind us of your dawn, Lord Jesus. Maybe walk in the daylight before you and with one another. And oh God, would we shine for your glory that those who are walking in darkness would see a great light through us. For the glory of your name we ask. Amen.